just remind ourselves of Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2 verse 2 for instance. In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Let's pray ask God to help us to understand this uh, chapter. Our Heavenly Father, we need your help as we come to read your word. Uh, Every one of us knows uh, the feeling of um, reading passages and not feeling we understand them, Lord. We can only really be helped in that by your Holy Spirit. So, come and work amongst us, we pray, Lord, for each of us as individuals, for me as I seek to explain this chapter, for all of us gathered together as a church, Lord, as well. Speak to us, minister to us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I remember uh, sitting in a classroom, I think it was um, about 1975. I was just in my teens. And uh, I was in an RE lesson when our teacher played us <coughs> a rather crackly, high-pitched, squeaky recording of the, uh, uh, a man, a speech by a man, um, which had been made just over ten years before that, uh, that time. I knew almost nothing about that man. But uh, this is what I heard on that recording. I have a dream. It's a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will sit down together at the table of brotherhood I have a dream that my four little children will live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama little black boys and little black girls will one day join hands with little white boys and little white girls as brothers and sisters. I have a dream today. This is our hope. This is the faith. With this faith we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith we will be able to work together, to prat together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. So let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring. It was Martin Luther King, of course. And that speech was delivered at uh, Lincoln Memorial on the 28th of August, 1963. I have to say, today, that speech 
feels as if it comes from another world. There have been some, some great developments in the Western world in, in, in America. But in our world today, there is still massive injustice, massive inequalities. And perhaps the saddest thing about today's world is we no longer seem to be truly excited, truly motivated, truly captured by Martin Luther King's dream. Very interesting this week, the uh, presidential debates. Um, They no longer seem to be uh, really about who is going to uh, 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 bring in that great dream that Martin Luther King was talking about. Almost the whole of the presidential debate um, uh, this week was was dominated by who is going to to protect the nation the best from uh, external aggressors. Freedom these days seems to be much more defined in terms of uh, uh, protection from, from, from foreign assailants and sometimes in waging war. There, there is a real mood of unease in society today. As, uh, I, was, as I was saying last week, last week um, we described the, uh, um, the state of our world today as uh, a long way east of Eden, taking as our cue the uh, um, story of the banishment from the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, how Adam and Eve had to live to the east of the Garden of Eden. Some modern commentators um, use that image to describe really the state we are in, a long way east of Eden. And there's much less optimism about it, it seems to me. I don't know whether you remember the film Independence Day. It um, uh, describes an alien invasion. And of course, the world beats the aliens. The same uh, director actually um, uh, directed the, uh, another film, The Day After Tomorrow describes a catastrophic uh, uh, cooling in the uh, north of uh, uh, the world and uh, utter disaster for those northern nations. Much less positive than Independence Day. Captures the mood post 9-11 of uh, where we are at. And that mood, as again we said last week, is actually very similar to the, to the mood of Israel in Isaiah's day. He began his uh, prophesying, as he says uh, in, in chapter 6, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah had had a long and peaceful reign, but when he died, Israel went into a phase of uh, <coughs> unstable leadership and uh, uh, dangerous enemies growing in power around them. It felt uncomfortable to be in Israel in Isaiah's day. And Isaiah speaks exactly into that mood, that circumstance. Last week, he uh, um, 
just uh, in an initial way diagnosed the problem of Israel. They were deeply unjust. Though they thought they were seeking God, they were not in reality. Isaiah recorded God pleading with them, come and I will forgive you. Well, this week in Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah speaks to the nation again, the nation of Israel, feeling threatened, feeling worried, and sets before them two great possibilities, two images of the future, two possibilities for the day after tomorrow, should we say. Two communities. One, a community of destruction. The other, a community of peace. That's what we're going to look at this morning. First of all, in verses 6 to uh, 22, this community of destruction in Isaiah chapter 2. The characteristics of this uh, community that Isaiah describes are very significant, I think. First of all, he says, they are superstitious. Verse 6, you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and clasp hands with, with, with pagans. They had abandoned God and God was threatening to abandon them. Instead, they had run around after any other God or belief system that seemed to offer some sort of comfort, some sort of hope. It's actually frighteningly similar to the world that we, that we live in. There has been a massive rise in all sorts of other religious beliefs in the West. Some of, some of them have, have uh, some good things to say about them. But all of them pale compared with uh, the true God, the living God, and worshipping Him. I think a major reason for this rise in all sorts of different uh, um, uh, religions and faiths is in fact because our nation has made such an effort to throw off God altogether. John Wesley said uh, 200 or so years ago, if a man will not believe in God, he will believe anything. Why, he may even believe a man can put himself into a court bottle. That's the sadness of actually our world. There are many, many superstitions, many, many beliefs that in the end, in the last analysis, do not bring comfort, do not bring hope, do not bring us any real help. But we cling to them, we search for them because we don't know the real God, the living God. They are full of superstitions. Yes, he says, and they are rich. Do you see that in verse 7? Their land is full. A second full here. There are four things that the land is full of. Their, their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. It's interesting. Does God hate riches then? Well, no. Money itself is not an evil as far as the Bible is concerned. Wealth is generally seen as a good thing. But the love of money is... 
obsession with wealth is, and sadly, at least our nation, I think, is obsessed with wealth. We, we measure our progress in terms of the growth of uh, GDP. There was an interesting survey, um, uh, people who remember the 1950s uh, th- this week, where they had far, far less things and were far less wealthy. Overwhelming majority of people who remembered the 1950s said they'd rather be living then than now. Now, um, those people, I think, have, have got it right. Wealth is not necessarily a, uh, an automatic good thing for us. Remember, the Egyptians who enslaved the Israelites were fabulously wealthy in the Old Testament. Assyria and Babylon, who sent the nation of Israel into exile, were wealthy. The Roman Empire later on, which persecuted God's church, was, uh, was wealthy. You know the joke, you can tell what God thinks of money by the people he gives it to. Well, perhaps that's slightly overstating it. But uh, here there is a clear criticism of this nation. And it seemed far more interested in filling itself with wealth and gold and silver than anything else. I wonder which nations on earth God approves of the most today. You can be pretty sure it's extremely unlikely to be the wealthiest ones. And they were powerful as well, or obsessed with their power. Look at uh, uh, verse 7. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Horses get a pretty bad press in the Bible, if you, uh, uh, if, if you look it up. Not because God is speciesist, of course, but because horses were used for war. Chariots as well are mentioned here. They were symbolic of power. I, I well remember when I was in my 20s spending a few months in Nepal and uh, everyone travels on foot there except a few very wealthy people who you will see trotting around uh, the hills of Nepal on their horses. It's a statement. And everybody uh, knew what it meant. That person is rich and wealthy and powerful and intimidating. Yes, their land is full of horses, says Isaiah. Now, when um, on the 11th of November, just two months after the the Twin Towers went down, George Bush said, the evil ones have roused a mighty nation and a mighty land. I was worried. Because I thought if the response is only in terms of might and power and war, the world is in big trouble. Now Israel in the, in the Bible is warned against building up a great army Uh, The biggest armies in the world are never God's armies in the Bible. 
Now this description of Israel is too frighteningly similar to our world for us to ignore it. And it is idolatrous, verse 8. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. Perhaps you think we can be free of the charge of idolatry. But actually, when you get to the heart of what idolatry means in the Bible, we are far, far too close to it for comfort. You see, to be idolatrous in the Bible is to invest our hopes in anything other than God and especially to invest our hopes in what we have made. In Israel, of course, they made their little figurines and worshipped them and they do in, in some parts of the world today. But the sophisticated West is not that much different. Where do you invest your hopes? Is it in something that you have made or you are determined to make? Or is it in God? The land is full of idolatry. The land is full of worship of human beings and what we can do. Later on in Isaiah, Isaiah mocks that. He says you have to nail the feet of your little idols to the table to stop them falling over. They are so pathetically weak. And he would mock us today. You have to take out house, uh, household insurance and uh, uh, life assurance, don't you, to protect your money, he says. You take out uh, um, a pay into pension plans and they end up paying you nothing back when you retire, he says. What a mockery of false security. You become obsessed by uh, um, manipulating other people to get what you want. You find yourself utterly alone without any true friends. What is the fate then? of uh, this community of destruction. Isaiah is similarly very, very clear about that. Their fate is utterly terrifying. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the dread of the Lord, the splendour of his majesty, he says, verse 19. Men will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendour of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth In that day men will throw away to the rodents and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks to the overhanging crags and dread of the Lord and the splendour of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Most especially actually in God's sight is our pride. Pride is written all over the place uh, in, uh, uh, in this. Look at verses 11 and 12, for instance. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled. The pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted. They will be humbled. Our arrogance, our haughtiness, our self-exaltation 
God hates, says Isaiah, if we will not live humbly, trusting God, then he will humble us in the end. And that image, you see, in Isaiah, is not ameliorated in the New Testament, it's intensified. Intensified most especially in the book of Revelation, God's final great day of um, judgment. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave, every free man, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountain. They called on to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide from us, from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand, says Revelation. God does not withdraw his solemn assertion that he will judge superstitious people, wealth-obsessed people, power-obsessed people, idolatrous people, proud people. Indeed, in that horrifying picture in Revelation of God's final judgment, they long for mountains to fall on them rather than face the wrath of Jesus Christ. That, I have to say, as I look around the world, is the general characteristic of this world that we live in. And we have to say to ourselves as individuals, honestly, it is something that we very easily fall into. And at the root of it all, says Isaiah, is pride. Pride that says, I will not listen to God. Pride that says, I would rather store up my own wealth and look after myself than entrust myself to the care of God. Pride that says, I would rather use my power, my strength, than rely on the power of God. Pride that says, I'm in command. And God had better get off. And that will not last. The Lord Almighty, verse 12, has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted. They will be humbled. That is one image then that Isaiah gives us in this chapter. And it is a shocking and sobering, even frightening image But there is another one too. Alongside this uh, community of destruction, Isaiah sees a community of hope. 
as well. And actually it's the same community, exactly the same community. Do you see that in, verse, in chapter 1 and verse 2? This is what Isaiah son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem as well. It's been Judah and Jerusalem whom he has been criticising in the second half of the, of the chapter. And uh, it, it, the, this, this commu- alternative community that he sees, that he describes at the beginning of the chapter, is that same community. It's potentially the same people. This is what will happen, he says, in the last days. Verse 2. This uh, community, this new community that he, he foresees will first of all be focused on the Lord's temple, the Lord's hill. Verse 2. In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. Jerusalem sat on a modest hill, actually. There were higher hills around it. But uh, Isaiah gives us a picture of this, this little hill of God being raised up above all the rest of them because it's the place where God dwells. It's the hill of the Lord's temple. And that, that exalted hill, that exalted place where God dwells, he says, will attract the whole world. See that in... Uh, um, uh, verse 2, all the nations will stream to it. It will become a global community of all nations. Uh, a community as well, voluntarily gathering. That's particularly clear in verse 3. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. They will come by the magnetism of God, not by compulsion. They will, become because, they will come because they want to live God's uh, way. Um, verse 3 again. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths, they say. The law will go out from Zion. They will have a desire deep in their hearts to learn God's ways, to, to, to understand his attitudes, his his habits of the heart, to to walk in his paths, to behave in the way that he habitually behaves. It will be a community of reconciliation as well. Verse 4. He will judge between the nations, will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares. Old national divisions in this new community will will break down, says Isaiah. Old clan divisions between different peoples will disappear. And that warfare that was characterised by the past will now be turned into fruitfulness. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. They will abandon the means of war, says Isaiah, beating swords into plowshares. They will abandon the practice of war. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will abandon the mentality of war. They will not train for war. And they will turn their energies into fruitful labour. That picture of producing ploughshares is beautiful and may actually want us to to think back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were given the task of of tilling the land 
God is going to be in the business of re-establishing a new creation where people are not at odds with each other but are once again living at peace with each other and with God's land. And that picture, of course, is fulfilled and expanded in the New Testament. First of all, we find these... uh, these images, these expectations in Isaiah's mind um, being fulfilled in Jesus himself. It's very interesting to read John chapter 12 in the light of Isaiah chapter 2. What happens in John chapter 12 is some Greeks, some people from one of the foreign nations come and they say, we want to see Jesus. It sounds like the first taste of come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And Jesus seems to uh, interpret it in that way because he sees that as a key moment in his ministry. The time has come, he says, for me to be glorified. And he describes his glorification in a very interesting way. He says, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. John chapter 12, verse 32. Do you think he could have had it in his mind? The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. I, when I am lifted up, he says, he's already said, that he is one greater than the temple, that he is the place where God dwells. And now he says, it's not going to be the mountain of the Lord's temple. It's going to be me who's lifted up. And I will draw all men to myself. When he spoke of being lifted up, of course, he meant being lifted up on the cross. That is God's greatest moment of exaltation. That is the thing that draws people to God. Because the cross reveals God's self-giving his willingness to die on the cross for our sins. The cross reveals the most glorious thing about the living God. That he is prepared to be weak. He is prepared to be helpless. He is prepared to bear our sins, though he didn't need to in order that we could be forgiven. In the last days, says Isaiah, people from all nations will stream to that exalted place.
And that fulfilment that began in Jesus actually continues in God's church. Um, there's, just to give you uh, one uh, uh, example of that, it's very interesting how the New Testament um, uh, builds on this image that there is in, um, uh, where is it, in, in verse... where the law goes out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In the book of Acts, where, we descri- where, where, where uh, Luke describes the establishment of God's church, it's actually the word of God, again and again and again, that seems to act almost independently of human beings, as if it was, as, as if it was driven by God himself. Act 8, verse 14, Samaria accepted the word of God. Act 11, verse 1, the Gentiles received the word of God. Acts 12, 24, the word of God continued itself to increase in and spread. Acts 13, verse 49, the word of God spread through the whole region. Acts 19, verse 20, in this way the, 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 the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. In Acts, we are seeing the fulfilment of that promise that Isaiah gave, that God's word would stream out as the people streamed in to the whole world. See, we are a small part of that as God's people. And we've, we've had a, quite a lot of emphasis recently on communicating God's word to people who don't yet know Christ, on evangelism as Christians tend to, uh, uh, tend to call it. It's easy to get very hung up on that. Actually, just living for Christ spreads the word of God. Some people may be called especially to speak it. Some people may have particular gifts of teaching. But it's the whole of God's community simply living for Christ as described in the book of Acts that causes the word that, that, that seems to have a life of its own as it's set free in that way to spread throughout the world because God has determined that it should happen. And of course, God's church is the place where this peace and reconciliation that is spoken of here is achieved. Listen to Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, for instance. For Jesus himself is our peace. He has made the two, one, two separate types of people, one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He came and preached, peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near and united us all as servants of Jesus Christ. And that fulfilment that began in Jesus and continues in God's church will finally find its culmination in God's new creation. In what Revelation 21 describes as the new Jerusalem. This is a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Well, God will one day make an entirely new creation of resurrected people 
which is described in some places as a new Jerusalem. Listen to what John says in Revelation 21. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of the Lord gives it a lamp. The Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. This vision of Isaiah then, begun in Jesus, continued in his church, completed at the end of history. This is the second community that Isaiah describes. Well, let me just, for a few minutes, point up for you then four implications for us. First of all, there has to be a reason to fear, doesn't there? Yes, God is a God of, of, of love. But he is also a God who hates idolatry and wickedness and pride. I would be misleading you if I um, didn't point out those passages in scripture that is designed to warn us and to warn us very, very seriously. Judah and Jerusalem may be going the way of destruction, says Isaiah. Be warned. Secondly, there is a reason to rejoice. A reason to rejoice in that Jesus has now become the foundation stone of this new, better vision for a world community. Jesus himself has become the centrepiece, lifted up on the cross, now drawing all, to, all people to himself. He doesn't compel it, he doesn't force it, he invites it. And, uh, and we, as we find out who Jesus is, as we discover the true Jesus, we find the true and living God, we find ourselves drawn inexorably so that we say, come, let us walk in his paths. Come, let us go and find this Jesus. He has done this for us. And his appeal doesn't com- uh, isn't confined to just one nation, but to every nation, all mankind. we can rejoice that we have begun to see established what Isaiah looked forward to. And a reason to live as well. We have this extraordinary privilege that we are part of that ongoing story, part of that story from foundation in Jesus to completion in the new heaven and the new earth. The word of God is spreading, will spread throughout the world God's great community will grow and grow and grow, says Jesus, until the last day. And we have a purpose in that great story. You and I, whatever our gifts, whatever our abilities, 
They have a glorious purpose, a reason to live. Because we can be part of that great vision that Isaiah sets before us. In this church, locally, we, we, we see just a little microcosm of that. People from different nations, different backgrounds, all sorts of different people, attracted by one central thing, Jesus Christ, lifted up on the cross. Finding a, a reason to live. And there is also a reason to hope, isn't there? Because that prediction that was made 800 years before Christ began its fulfilment in Christ, has continued its fulfilment in God's church and he's not going to stop now. God is going to bring that uh, final great day when he makes his new creation And peoples from every tribe and nation will be found worshipping the Lamb, Jesus Christ. You know, uh, all those years ago, in the 1960s, Martin Luther King's vision, in a small way, was very similar to Isaiah's too, wasn't it? His particular concern was the nation of America, that it should be a place of equality, a place of peace. But actually, on the 3rd of April 1968, he uh, preached another sort of sermon. A sermon where he revealed that he seems to have had a vision something beyond that. Let me read to you the last paragraph of that sermon. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I'd like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go to the mountaintop. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Next day, Martin Luther King was assassinated. But God had shown him something, hadn't he? I think God had shown Martin Luther King something of what God showed Isaiah. And he was reassured 
but a life lived for God, a life lived serving God, a life lived delighting in Jesus. There's a life that is part of that great plan. And a life that will not be disappointed. So how are you going to lead your life? What are you going to do with it? There are so many temptations, aren't there? So many things that could lead us astray. So, so many delightful pastimes. But when our eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, we won't live, want to live for anything else. Now the time has come, said Jesus. The Son of Man to be glorified. When I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself.